Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for all that Revelation 12 shows us. And as we grapple with these verses again this evening, we pray for your help for me and for all of us, that we might learn much of Christ in this time, and that we might be equipped to live for him in this world all our days. In our Saviour's precious name, we ask all of these things. Amen. So please do have your Bible open there at Revelation chapter 12. We're in verses 7 through 17 uh, this evening. And if you are here this morning, uh, you'll know that we spent our time looking at what I described as the, the Bible's strangest account of the Christmas story. Christmas like you've never seen it before, perhaps. John gives us this apocalyptic vision of three characters. So firstly, there is this woman. And as we saw this morning, she stands for the people of God. She is at one and the same time both glorious and also suffering. And her suffering is all bound up with the fact that she is pregnant with this male child who is to be born. And then secondly, there was the dragon. And the dragon represents Satan, this powerful, destructive, and murderous being. And his murderous intent is focused upon the woman, that is the people of God, but especially and in particular, he is seen to oppose this child, the Christ, who was to be born. He seeks the destruction of the Christ. He seeks to devour him. And the child, of course, in the story is the Lord Jesus, born at that first Christmas. And though the dragon sought to devour him, this child was in time taken up to God, taken up to his throne, where he is today. He fulfills Psalm 2 as the king who will one day judge the nations with an iron rod. And the vision concluded with the woman going into the wilderness for a period of time, 1,260 days. And as we saw this morning, it, ref it reflects the fact and represents the fact that the people of God here on earth, that's us, are saved by God, and yet we live in a hostile environment, a place where our faith is tested, and yet God cares for us. He protects us. He nourishes the church through this. And thankfully, this state of affairs will not go on forever. It is for a limited time. And soon we will enter into the enjoyment of that promised inheritance that God has in store for us. So we covered a lot of ground this morning, but still there is more that John has to say about these things. And in the rest of the chapter, this same vision continues 
and it develops. And we're going to unpack the rest of the vision this evening. And there are three main scenes, if you like, in the rest of the vision. Each telling us something which we must understand as we seek to live as God's people here on earth. And so here's the the first thing. Know that Satan is a defeated enemy. Know that Satan is a defeated enemy. Sinclair Ferguson has an interesting way of describing the structure of the whole Bible. Now, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, this, but you'll get the point. And he says, think of it in these terms. The story of the Bible finishes at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then the rest of the Bible, all the subsequent verses and chapters and books that come after that point, really are the footnotes explaining and unpacking Genesis 3.15 in more detail. You may be thinking, well, what is Genesis 3.15 all about? Why is that verse so significant? Well, it's the verse where God first announces the gospel and where he declares war on Satan. It's just after the fall, and God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God is saying, there is going to be this state of enmity, enmity, hatred, hostility between Satan and his people and Christ and his people. There is going to be this state of ongoing cosmic spiritual warfare, a warfare that straddles heaven and earth. And it will all culminate in this showdown between Satan and Christ. And in that showdown, that great battle, the Christ will be wounded, and yet Satan will be defeated. In a nutshell, that is the story of the whole Bible, all wrapped up in Genesis 3 verse 15, spiritual warfare between Christ and his people, and Satan and his people. And it's heading towards this ultimate deciding battle. And that warfare, you see, is the the background to all of the Bible, but particularly to what John sees here in this vision in Revelation 12. He says, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. So John sees this vision of cosmic spiritual warfare raging in heaven. It's the same warfare that has been raging all down the centuries. And yet now something significant, something decisive happens. 
And at last, this warfare is reaching its conclusion. We read, the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So John sees this vision of the defeat of the dragon taking place. Michael and his angels under his command are fighting against the dragon, fighting against the dragon's angels. It's a fierce battle. Neither side wants to give an inch. But eventually, Michael and his angels prevail. And at that point, the dragon and his angels, all of the demons, are, are thrown out of heaven, thrown down to the earth. And you see, very simply, what this first part of the vision is there to tell us is that Satan is a defeated enemy. He is a defeated enemy. And we need to know that because as Christians here on earth, it doesn't always look like does it. We can easily forget it. And as we're going to find out later on as the vision develops, the fact that Satan is defeated is not the same thing as saying that he's inactive. Far from it. He's still prowling around. He's still attacking Christians. Still doing his dirty work. At times, it looks like he's got the upper hand. It looks like he's going to win. And yet through the vision... As it were, God is here drawing back the curtain to reveal this sight of the, uh, the spiritual realities that stand behind everything else that is going on in this universe. And the spiritual reality behind it all is that Satan is a defeated enemy. And so Christian person, when you feel against it, when you feel like the powers of darkness are closing in against you, remember this. Remember, first and foremost, Satan is a defeated enemy. One commentator sums it up like this. The single intent of this passage is to assure those who meet satanic evil on earth that it is really a defeated power, however contrary it might seem to human experience. Whatever appears to be the earthly situation for God's people now, the victory has already been won. When the battle grows fiercer and darker for the church, it is but the sign of the last futile attempt of the dragon to exercise his power before the kingdom of Christ comes. Know that Satan is a defeated enemy. And that begs the question, how has he been defeated? How has Satan been defeated? And the next few verses answer that question for us in verses 10 to 12. And what we've been told here is this. Know that Christ has triumphed and he shares his victory with his people. Know that Christ has triumphed and shares his victory with his people. I wonder if you're into boxing. I'm not really into boxing myself, to be honest. But uh, if you ever watch a, a boxing match, at the end of the, the fight, the referee stands between 
the two pugilists and declares to everybody who is there uh, who the winner is, this person or, or this person. I'm sure you've seen that kind of thing on, on television. Now, in some fights, that is a very tense moment, uh, isn't it? Because perhaps it's been a, a very, very close fight. Uh, it's all going to go down to points. It's maybe going to be a split decision. And yet in other fights, the announcement of the winner is not tense at all. Because maybe one boxer has been knocked out by the other boxer. So everybody already knows who the winner is. But nevertheless, the referee still stands between the two of them and announces to everyone who the winner is. And you see, something similar is happening here in verses 10 to 12. We've already looked at verses 7 to 9. And we already know that Satan has been defeated in this great battle against Christ. We already know who the winner is. Satan has been knocked flat out. He's been thrown out of heaven. And yet, nevertheless, the winner is now announced, not by a, a boxing referee, but rather by a heavenly voice. We don't know whose voice it is exactly, but it's a voice from heaven crying out, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The voice is saying Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has brought salvation. God's power at work in Christ has overcome the power of Satan. The kingdom of God is established. The kingdom of Satan is being destroyed, dismantled. The authority of Christ to rule over the nations is now seen in this great victory over Satan. As John puts it in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now he has done his job in principle. Christ has triumphed. And so Satan is that defeated enemy. And the voice doesn't leave it there. He continues. He explains more of this great triumph of Christ over Satan. And as he does so, notice that he describes the main weapons, if you like, used by Satan and Christ in this battle. So firstly, what was Satan's weapon of choice? Well, his weapon of choice was accusations. Notice that. In fact, the name Satan literally means the accuser. And here he's described as the accuser of our brothers who has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And this, you see, is Satan's main strategy, that he loves to bring accusations against Christians. And truth be told, it isn't hard for Satan to find evidence against us. He knows that we're sinners just as we know that fact. He knows, just as we do, that every Christian deserves hell. And he loves to bring that fact up time and time again. As a Christian, you commit a sin. Maybe it's a big sin. Maybe it's a smaller sin. And whatever it is, you confess it to God. You repent of it. You seek God's forgiveness. And of course, that forgiveness is yours in Christ, 100%. And yet Satan just won't let it go. He, he whispers in the ear of the Christian, how dare you call yourself a Christian? 
How dare you go to church? How dare you come to the Lord's table? You have no right to go there and enjoy those privileges. You're just a sinner. You've let God down. He's disgusted with you. You should be disgusted with yourself as well. If you're a Christian, you've heard Satan whisper those things in your ear time and time again, haven't you? This is his main weapon that he's always wielded against the people of God. He's the great accuser. And his accusations are so powerful because it is based on genuine evidence. And how then did Jesus defeat Satan, this great accuser? What was the weapon of Christ against the weapon of Satan? Well, Christ triumphed, we read here, by the blood of his cross. Do you notice that in verse 11? John speaks there of the blood of the Lamb. And of course, by using that phrase, the blood of the Lamb, he's drawing on the imagery of the Passover when God's people were being held in slavery in Egypt. God was sending the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. But he told his people that there was one way and one way only for them to be saved from suffering that judgment of God themselves. And they were to take a lamb without blemish and they were to slaughter it and then they were to daub the blood of that lamb around their doorframe of their houses. And when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt that night and saw the blood of the lamb above the door, he would pass over that house. In every household in Egypt that night, something died. Either the firstborn died or the lamb died in their place. And you see, John is saying here what Jesus did at the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of that Passover story. He is the ultimate Passover lamb, the one who died in the place of his people. The judgment of God, which we deserve for all of our sin, was poured out on him instead as our substitute. And therefore, the blood of Jesus shed at the cross is enough to silence all the accusations of Satan against God's people. Satan has no answer to the cross. Through the cross, Christ triumphed over Satan. And what is more, Christ shares that triumph with all of his people. Look at what the heavenly voice declares to us in verse 11. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. I wonder, does that sentence describe you this evening that you're one of those whose testimony is that you yourself have taken shelter as it were underneath the blood of Christ and that that is the testimony you're going to be sticking to even though it may cost you your life as it did for those 11 Christians in Nigeria on Christmas day and if so If you're one of those who hold to that testimony, Christ shares his triumph over Satan with you. And every accusation that Satan can ever bring against you is silenced by the cross of Christ. Him puts it so well, doesn't it? Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, 
thou hast died. Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Know that Christ has triumphed and he shares his victory with his people. And if you are one of those people with whom Christ has shared his victory, it should fill us with rejoicing, shouldn't it? Notice the the note of rejoicing in verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice, because Christ has triumphed over Satan at the cross, and he shares his victory with you. And that might be where you expect the vision to end on this triumphant note. But there's a but, isn't there? There is one final part of this great vision of Revelation 12, which tells us one more thing we need to know. And so thirdly and finally this evening, know that the battle still rages on earth. Know that the battle still rages on earth. Look at those final words of verse 12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now, Satan has been cast out of heaven, as we've seen already. And he's been cast down to the earth. And that's where we are. And Satan is seething. He's furious because he knows that he has lost. He knows that his time is short until his defeat is made complete when Jesus returns. So what does the dragon, what does Satan, the devil, do now? Well, as we saw this morning, his original plan was to devour the Christ after he was born. And of course, that plan failed because even though Christ did die, Christ rose again and ascended to heaven and he's on the throne there. So that's not possible for the dragon to do now. He cannot devour the Christ. And also Satan's plan has always been to bring accusations against Christ's people. But as we've seen already, those accusations ring hollow now. Utterly futile because of the cross of Christ. And what is more, Satan cannot lay a finger on all of Christ's people who are already in heaven. Because as we've been told, Satan has been cast out of heaven. And you see he is running out of options, isn't he? As well as running out of time. And there is only really one thing that he can do. And that is that he can try and attack the woman who is in the wilderness. And that is what happens in the last bit of the vision, isn't it? Verse 13 and following. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, what does all of this imagery mean? Uh, 
Remember what we saw this morning about the woman. The woman in the wilderness refers to the New Testament people of God here on earth. The woman in the wilderness is the church on earth today. It refers to us, in other words. We are the woman in the wilderness. And as we saw this morning, the idea of the woman being in the wilderness is symbolic of the fact that there are certain parallels that can be drawn between the church's experience in the world today and Israel's experience in the wilderness back in the Old Testament. That is, we can see these points of, of similarity. Firstly, that we're a people who've already experienced redemption because it's already happened 2,000 years ago at the cross. Secondly, we live in an environment where our faith is tested. Thirdly, throughout all of this, God cares for his people and nourishes them and goes with them every step of the way. And fourthly, we're a people who are nearly home. Our inheritance is not too far away. And this period of history in which we now live will be relatively brief, all things considered. Christ will return soon. He will bring us into the full enjoyment of everything that he has in store for us. These are the ideas to have in mind when we read here of the woman in the wilderness. And what this part of the vision tells us is that it is Satan's policy now to attack the woman in the wilderness. That is, to attack the church on earth in any way that he can. And this is what it looks like in terms of the vision. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, think back now again to Israel in the wilderness and the parallels that we can see here. Their journey to the promised land and the entrance into an enjoyment of their inheritance is coming to an end. And ask yourself this, what stands between them and their inheritance? What is the final obstacle between them and the promised land? Of course, the final obstacle is a river. And of course, you know the story from the book of Joshua. You can read it there in chapters 3 and 4. The point is that this mighty flowing river, right in front of the church, the people of God in the wilderness, it looks far too threatening, far too powerful for them to negotiate it. How are they ever going to overcome this? How are they ever not going to be swept aside by this. It looks like this is going to stop them getting to their inheritance. They're just going to die in the wilderness. But of course, God comes to the rescue, doesn't he, in the book of Joshua. And in his mighty providence, he removes the river out of the way and then brings his people into their inheritance. And you see, with that Old Testament imagery in mind, here in Revelation 12, the dragon sends a river against the woman in the wilderness. 
And that is Satan pours out whatever he can against the church on earth in order to stand in the way of the church reaching their inheritance in glory. Now, he doesn't send a literal river, of course. He sends persecutions and accusations and temptations and discouragements and illnesses of body and mind. He sends false teaching and so on and so on. And you see, he wants to try and sweep the church away with these things. As it were, he places all of these things in between where you are and where your inheritance is. And it looks like it's too much to get there. Too much for you to get past all of these things. It's very real, isn't it? What we've been shown in this vision. Don't think that if you're a Christian and you've decided to follow Christ that you're going to have it easy in the world. Far from it. Yes, Satan is a defeated enemy. And Christ has triumphed and shares his victory with you. And yet, nevertheless, the battle still rages on earth. And it rages still because Satan knows that he is lost. And he knows that Christ has won. And he knows that his time is short. And he knows that this is all he can do now. And he's furious about all of those things. And so, as it were, he sends this mighty flowing river of opposition against the church in the world. And he puts it between you and your inheritance. And it makes it look like you'll never get there. It makes it feel like it's impossible for you to keep going as a Christian. It makes it feel like it's going to be impossible for you to ever reach glory. And I don't know everything you're up against in your Christian life. But at times it will look far too threatening and far too powerful for you to try and negotiate it. How are you ever going to overcome this? You ask yourself. And just as the Jordan couldn't keep Israel out of their inheritance. The good news of Revelation 12 is that all of Satan's schemes cannot keep us out of our inheritance either. Because God deals with it all in his providence. And he gets all of his people safely home in the end. How many Israelites drowned in the Jordan? Precisely none. And how many Christians can Satan keep out of glory? Precisely none. We all get home in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has triumphed over Satan. And we pray that even though the battle still rages on earth, that you would strengthen us, that you would go before us in your providence, that you would keep us going, that you would nourish us and sustain us, and that whatever the enemy may do against us, that we would always have that assurance in our hearts, that there is nothing that he can do to keep us from glory because our place there is secure because of what Christ has done at the cross. We praise you for that wonderful victory of Jesus over Satan when Christ died and rose again. We thank you that 
though we are sinful people, every accusation of Satan is now answered perfectly in the cross of Christ. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And whatever we may face, Father, help us to keep going as your people. Thank you that whatever Satan may do against us, it is all futile in the end. He cannot snatch us out of Christ's hand. He cannot sweep us aside and prevent us from entering into the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. We thank you for our Saviour who gets us safely home. And in his strong name, we pray these things. Amen.